Guys, this series is going to be incredible. It's so fun to talk about the deity of Christ. Um, I know people were like looking forward to the last episode of Waiting on the Lord. Um, I realized that what I was planning to do was essentially going to be eschatology. I was just going to talk about what we're waiting for in the end times. And I, to be honest, like straight up, I'm not even completely sure of where I stand on certain uh, eschatological topics and ideas. And so I wanted to put that off for a later series. I wanted to end waiting on the Lord, nine episodes. I think that's a lot. And so eventually we'll talk eschatology when I've studied a bit more and researched. And I know where I stand. I want to know where I stand. So um, one of the big things I really have been wanting to talk about, it's been coming up in conversations. It's been coming up in small groups. It's been coming up in, on the chats and the lives is the deity of Christ. Is Jesus really the divine son of God? Is he God in the flesh like the Christians claim? Um, last year I did a whole four and a half hour episode uh, going through 55 reasons. Uh, it's been over a year now. I did 55 reasons why the scripture teaches, not church history, not church fathers, not outside, what scripture teaches. 55 reasons that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, since then, after all the conversations I've had with you guys on Discord and, and the Bible studies we've had, I see so much more that I have to, I need to share this because the problem is, you know, you might believe, I, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he's God in the flesh, but you don't know how to defend that. Like biblically, you don't know how to stand on that. And when people come, like whether they're Muslim, whether they're Jehovah's Witness, whether they're Buddhist, whatever religion they're coming and representing the atheist, and they're attacking what scripture says, they're going, look, you know, this is why I don't believe Jesus is God. And you, and you don't know how to defend that. You don't know how to actually like stand your ground. And so hopefully, yes, this will equip you. Yes, I hope this will be like uh, training for you. But more than that, I think more than that, my heart, is that you would see Jesus for who he really is. You would stand in awe of who he is. You would absolutely fall on your face and go, he's so much better than what I thought. And so every episode, I'm gonna give you the outline of this series. I'm gonna do something unique over the next four-ish weeks. Um, I'm gonna go live Monday and Wednesday, so twice a week. And Lord willing, okay, this is me hoping for the best, Lord willing on Fridays, I'll open that up for Q&A. And so for the next four weeks, mark your calendars, Monday, Wednesday, talking about the deity of Christ, the divinity of Jesus, and then Friday, you can bring your questions. Not necessarily uh, your objections yet, okay? But here's the series. Today, I wanna talk about Jesus in, in the prophecy of Isaiah. In the prophecy of Isaiah. The next episode, which will be Wednesday, I'm gonna talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to see the Word of God and the Angel of God. In, in episode 3, which would be next Monday, I'm going to go through 25 reasons Scripture explicitly teaches Jesus is God in the flesh. And then that following Wednesday, 25 more reasons. That'll be episode 4. Episode 5, the following week, it'll be about the only begotten Son because that's a common objection. Is those People who don't believe that Jesus is God, they'll say, well, He's the only begotten Son. He's begotten, which means he's created. We'll address that. The only begotten son explained in Hebrews. And then the next episode, episode six, we'll talk about what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son. Okay. And then episode seven and eight, which will be the fourth week, we're going to talk about common objections in scripture that people will use 
to try and undermine the divinity of Jesus. Um, and so those are the eight episodes you can plan on watching. So far I have 56 pages of notes. Today alone I have nine, no, 12. And so let's just get right into it. The whole premise of this is that look, if Jesus is not God, we aren't saved. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why along the way, but just know this is my heart. I do want you to be able to, t to defend your faith. I really would love for you to be able to stand on the truth and explain with scripture why you believe what you believe, but, but even more, I want you to have a deep understanding of who he is, a deep value and a reverence and a love and appreciation and a worship for the king. That's my heart, okay? So I'm not arguing that Jesus is God the Father. This is not modalism. Modalism essentially will teach um, that, G that God assumes three different forms at different times. Um, there's another common way of understanding this whole confusion of the, the Godhead. It's called um, oneness theology. And essentially, you know, hi Paula, good to see you sister. Essentially, oneness theology will take the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and say, well, hold on, we're not saying God puts on different masks at different times. We're not saying he assumes different forms. We're not modalists. Okay, we do believe he's one, but the way he manifests himself at different times while main, it's, it's this whole confusing thing. Okay, so I'm, all I'm doing from scripture, I'm not explaining where I stand on the Trinity and the, Trin, you know, the Godhead. All I'm saying is Jesus is divine. He's uncreated. He's eternally existent. He's self-sustained. He's like God in the flesh. Um, common argument is Deuteronomy 6.4. Let's go there, okay? So what I'm going to do for you today, today's going to be legit, man. What I'm going to do for you today is we're going to go into the prophecy of Isaiah, okay? Before we look at Deuteronomy 6.4, I'm just laying out the, you know, where we're going. Today, we're going to look at the prophecy of Isaiah and specifically in those 66 chapters, I believe, Isaiah has several themes, several themes. He talks about the salvation of God. Okay, so go to Deuteronomy 6.4. He talks about the righteousness of God. He talks about the power of God or the arm. He actually uses the language of the arm of God. He uses, uh, talks about the name of God, the glory of God, the word of God, and the angel of God. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven themes in Isaiah as relating to who God is. And what you're gonna see in the New Testament is Jesus is explicitly uh, labeled and given the title of every one of those things. He's the salvation, he's our righteousness, he's the power of God or the arm of God, he's the name of God, the sum total of his character, he's the glory of God, he's the word of God. And you're gonna see, I believe, that in Revelation, him being the ultimate witness, the messenger, the final ultimate messenger, according to Hebrews 1, He's what we see in the Old Testament as, at, at certain times, the angel of God. Okay, so Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, this is the common pushback. The Lord is one. The word here in Hebrew is actually echad. Probably said that terribly. Silver Mouse, you can call me later and make fun of me. Okay, but it's echad. I can't get the throat. Echad. And what it literally means is just one. Just means one, so that's a good translation. The Lord is one. In Genesis 2.24, okay, Genesis 2.24, we see a uh, similar idea, same exact word, the word echad. 
Genesis 2.24. I was even practicing earlier, man. It's not matching up. Okay, thank you for catching that. Let me do it right now. Boop, 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 boop. No matter how many times I do this, it always wants to change on me. Okay, you can see it now. So back to Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God is one. He's one. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God. In other words, be loyal to him alone. Now, you go to Genesis 2, same word, echad. I can't get the throat thing today. It's just probably because of my team. Don't make fun of me. Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. In other words, there's a compound unity happening. There's a compound unity, a oneness that is at least two being one. Okay, it's very important because Jesus is going to quote Deuteronomy 6.4 in Mark chapter 12. This is from the, the mouth of Jesus, right? Someone's going to come up and go, which is the most important commandment? He's really just trying to corner Jesus. But nonetheless, Jesus goes, hey, the most important is this, Deuteronomy 6.4. You know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, whenever you see Deuteronomy 6.4, or wherever you, whenever you see the Lord is one, it's, it's noting, okay, that your allegiance, your loyalty, your worship should lie with God alone. The God of Israel is the only one that is deserving of our worship, our praise, our adoration, our loyalty, right? He's the only one. There's none besides him. There's none like him, okay? In 1 Corinthians 12, we see another usage the word one referring to compound unity. First Corinthians, I'm just trying to let you know that when you and I think one, we just think restrictively like singular. Whereas in Hebrew and Greek, the understanding of who the God of Israel is, it can actually refer to compound unity. It can be a oneness of heart, oneness of purpose, oneness of ambition and character, oneness of of goal. 1 Corinthians 12, it says, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, even though are many, there's one body, so it is with Christ. The body of Jesus is one, but the members are countless. In one spirit, we were baptized into one body. Okay, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male, female, all were made to drink of one spirit. And so oneness is not just is not speaking to singularity in person. It's actually referring to singularity, the compound unity idea as applied to the God of Israel. I think there's a category biblically you're going to see that there is a God, the only true and living God, there's none like him and yet there's compound unity within the Godhead. That's the best way I can explain it until I show you with scripture because I don't want to show my hand too early. In other words, the oneness is speaking of unity, purpose, love, character, heart, um, which would assume more than one in order for God to be that, to at least have love um, reciprocated. There has to be another, which is why I believe even within the concept of love and the way we express love to someone else, there has to be someone on the opposite end to receive that love. And so for God to be love, if he eternally exists before everything that's created, there already has to be 
uh, a category for God, not just loving himself, but loving another who is eternally existent alongside him to be a part of the Godhead. You know, you can use the U.S. government analogy like James uses, you know, three branches, one government. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to try and explain it, but okay, let's just get to it. Isaiah. Isaiah is going to make it clear, and this is not just Isaiah. I'm just going to focus in on Isaiah's prophecy and show you that God's salvation, his righteousness, his power, his name, his glory, his word, and his, the angel of God are, are themes in Isaiah, but they culminate and find their, like, their unity in Jesus. For instance, let me just give you a couple scriptures to show you, you know, that Jesus is our salvation. Um, and then we'll go to Isaiah. It's hot in here again. Why is it always hot? So go to Luke chapter 2. This is uh, Simeon. See Simeon? He gets to see baby Jesus before he dies. The, the Spirit of God told him he would. It's really cool. And so now when he's holding Jesus in his arms, uh, I love that. Did he take Jesus out of Mary's arms? <laughs> did, did she willingly give him the baby? What up? But it says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation. Your salvation. That you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So there's also a little glimpse into Jesus being the glory of Israel. Not just salvation, but and often you'll see all these ideas together, and I'll give you an example of it, but you'll see salvation, the salvation of Israel is the glory of Israel being God. God is their salvation. God is their glory. God is their righteousness, right? And yet Jesus is going to be called the salvation of the people, the glory of Israel, the glory of God. First Corinthians 1.30, he's the righteousness of God. Be because of him, uh, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, now, became doesn't mean he was not at one point wisdom and righteousness, and at some point in his existence, he became that. It's becoming to us, meaning Jesus has always been righteous and wisdom. He's been righteousness and wisdom from the get-go, right? In, in all eternity past, that's who he is. But for our benefit, that righteousness and wisdom wasn't available to us until he became for us the sacrifice, Right, so there is Jesus assuming a role he's never known, which is to lay down his life sacrificially as the atonement, as the payment for our debt, as the one who takes our death upon himself. So he became that in the flesh when he took on human nature. But specifically, he is our righteousness. He's our sanctification and redemption so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And the Lord here, you might say, well, you know, Jesus is an extension of the Father. That doesn't seem to be all he is. Okay? That doesn't seem to be all he is. Verse 24, you're going to see that Jesus is called the power of God. Now, in Isaiah's prophecy, the arm of God is used quite a bit. He's going to talk about the arm of the Lord brought salvation. The arm of the Lord will rescue his people. The arm of God will judge the enemies of, of, of him, you know, 
So the arm of God, you're going to see, represents the power, the authority, the ability of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 tells us we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. Okay? So, so far we've seen, and I've done studies far more in depth on this. If you'd like to go check out our series, Jesus Is, I'm not going to go too far into that because I've already taught on that. I'm just giving you a few scriptures to prove Jesus is the salvation of God, the righteousness of God, the power, the wisdom of God. You're going to see that he's the word of God in John 1.14. This is all important when you're trying to, to build a, a theological, like a biblical picture of Jesus you need to take all these ideas as they are. It says, and the word became flesh, right? He dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So there you go. Jesus is the word of God. What about the glory of God? Is Jesus the glory of God? Yeah. What the, what the rays are to the son, Jesus is to the father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. John, Jesus in the upper room will say that, you know, um, Father, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, you know, uh, the glory I've had with you before the beginning that we've shared, you know, he talks about that glory. And it, weirdly enough, in Isaiah's prophecy, that's exactly what's being quoted, is that God doesn't share his glory with another. And yet the Son is not only sharing in the glory of the Father, he is the ex perfect expression and the actual glory of God. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, talks about, and this is where we'll get into the next episode, we'll talk about Jesus. My, okay, my understanding so far, and I know some of you disagree, that's fine, but when I read about the angel of God versus an angel or angels or just any, you know, uh, an angel of God or God's angel, the angel of God. In the Old Testament, I'm I'm so convinced that that is actually um, pre-incarnate Christ before He takes on flesh. Revelation 1:5 it actually tells us that the revelation John receives is from Jesus, the faithful witness, and that that's primarily how the angel of God functions in the Old Testament as a as a messenger for sure, doing the works of the Father but also like as a witness to the truth for the people. You know, so you're going to see, you know, John 8, 12, Jesus is the light of the world. John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, the life. Ephesians 2, 14, he's our peace. You, this is not, this is not just a normal person. Yes, he's human. This is not a created being. No person can be light apart from God extending to them light. That's how we're the light of Christ because he extends it with Jesus stands alone as the light of the world. He is the truth, like the word of God person. He is the life, the tree of life in the garden. Like that's representative of, of who Jesus is and what he offers. Ephesians 2, he's our peace. He's the power and wisdom of God. He's the righteousness, the salvation of God. So all these ideas, okay? In Isaiah's prophecy, let's go there. Let me give you one example. Let me give an example of what I mean, how not only will you see these themes in Isaiah, salvation, righteousness, okay, 
what I want you to see is in Isaiah's prophecy, these ideas are built on, you can't disconnect them. The righteousness of God is related to the word of God and the salvation of God and the arm of God. So, you know, whether it's God's word, his righteousness, his salvation, the angel of God that, that actually stands in the place of Yahweh among his people, uh, the arm of God, the glory of God, all these ideas are actually completely in unison. And it's as if you can't have one without the other because the arm of God accomplishes salvation by righteousness for the glory of God. All these ideas come together. So Isaiah 55.10, let me just give you a sample of what I mean. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and they do not return there, but water the earth and they make it, you know, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, okay? so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. And so it, this is why biblical authors have to anthropomorphize God, meaning they assign him like these, just so we can understand what he's doing in a way that makes sense to us. They'll assign him, you know, body parts like a mouth, like arms. Uh, does God literally have arms? I, he's spirit, okay? I know that. But more than anything, you'll see that the, the word of God, the righteousness of God, they're related to like some kind of body part of, of God. The word comes out of his mouth. His arm accomplishes salvation by his power. Um, his glory radiates from him. And so he goes, look, just like water always does something when it lands on the ground, my word that departs from my mouth will never return to me empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, so hold on to that. The word of God always accomplishes a specific purpose. Maybe not the original, like the, uh, when God brings the gospel to an unbeliever, the, the intention is that they would receive it, okay? But either way, even if they don't receive it, that word that they've rejected will be judgment against them. So it's, it's accomplishing some kind of purpose. Maybe it's going to lead them to the next instance where they're more, you know, vulnerable to, not vulnerable, but open to the gospel, more receptive or whatever it may be. The word of God always accomplishes a purpose. He says, you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord. So what the word of God is going to produce metaphorically in the earth, which is going to be among the nation of Israel, it's going to make a name for God. And so notice how the word of God here, his word, which doesn't return void, will always be to the glory of God's name, the sum total of his character, who he is. His word always is consistent with who he is, and it actually magnifies and exalts who he is. It makes a name for him in the earth. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. Now that's going to be a product, the product of the word of God being planted among the people. Is that justice and righteousness will actually result from that. He goes, soon my salvation will come. Okay. And soon my righteousness will be revealed. In other words, God will show himself strong and just and right 
in this whole situation of Israel being exiled, 70 years in Babylon, 70 years in Assyria, you know, whatever it is, and they come back. They come back into the land. I don't know if they're 70 years in Assyria. Babylon for sure. But either way, God is talking about when his word is planted, makes a name for himself, his salvation and his righteousness will come from him. It won't come from the people. It won't come from the people's efforts. It's going to come from God himself. And you're going to see all throughout Isaiah, it's like God is looking, going, who will be righteous? No one. Who will bring salvation? No one. Who will promote justice and make a name for me? No one. This is why we see God step into the world at the incarnation to do what no one else can. That's why it's so important we get this. Isaiah 53.1 is another example. Just I'm trying to show you that these ideas all come together and you almost can't have one without the other. Isaiah 53.1, it says, Who has believed what he's heard from us? So there's the word of God, what has been heard. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now there's going to be contextually, like when you read the context, specific things relating to the arm of God or the word of God. But here I want you to see that the arm of God being revealed is related to the word of God being heard. You're going to see John the Apostle in his gospel. He's going to say, uh, let's go there real quick so I show you what I mean. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So it's this whole question of how can you be something while yet being distinct from something. We think of God... Um, primarily, and be careful, I'm treading lightly here. Um, we think of God primarily as when you hear God in our culture, you think a being, a being comes to mind. Um, the God of Israel will actually reveal his name to Moses in Exodus. So I, I think I have biblical precedence to say that God in scripture functions more as a title that rightly only belongs to the Lord. I am that I am. The revealed name of the God of Israel to Moses is I am that I am. The eternally existent one, the self-sufficient one, the one who is outside time, the one who holds, that's his name, the Lord. And so I believe that when you see that Jesus is distinct from God, yet God at the same time, Isaiah has already given us categories when you, in the Old Testament for Jesus to fit perfectly into. The arm of God. Like my arm is, is, a, is, is me but not me. That's the best way I can think of it. Like my arm does what I want. It's an extension of me. It's a part of me, but it's not me. So it's both me yet not me at the same time. Uh, the salvation of God, the power of God, these are inherent to who God is, and you don't have them apart from him, right? And yet these things can be distinguished from God himself. To say like, well, we don't, you know, salvation as a concept is not the God we worship. Our God is the definition of salvation. Or our God is righteousness. But you can have righteousness in a way of life, right? You can see salvation among human beings. I can save you from drowning. Was that salvation God in essence? No but it's revealing the saving heart of God. So all these different ideas that, are, that you're gonna see in Isaiah, it's the whole 
God yet distinct from God. And it's so important to see it. In Isaiah, for instance, salvation, and all throughout Scripture, not just to Isaiah, but um, I have it written down. Salvation in Scripture always uh, means victory and deliverance for God's people and judgment upon God's enemies, whether that's spiritually, whether that's nationally for Israel, whether that's physically going into the nation, saving people from death. Um, salvation always means some kind of deliverance for someone, usually God's people, and then judgment upon someone else, whether it's death itself being judged, sin itself being judged, uh, the enemies of the enemy nations in the Old Testament being judged, Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies being judged. There's always that element of deliverance for one and judgment for another, right? So Isaiah chapter 12, verse two, let me just go down the list real quick. There's a lot I have to say. I wanna make sure I pace myself. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, it says, God is my salvation, okay? Isaiah 17, 10, it, Isaiah will say, the God of your salvation. And Isaiah 25, 9, it says, the God who gives salvation. Isaiah 26, 1, God sets up salvation. Isaiah 33, 2, God is the salvation of his people. Four verses later, again, he's the salvation of his people. Isaiah 45, 8, salvation and righteousness actually come together. You'll see, let me just give you an example. Uh, of that. Isaiah 45, 8, shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Remember the whole, the word of God is planted and it produces what glorifies the name of God. The word of God planted in the heart of a person, right, produces salvation for them for sure, you know, because of Jesus. And Jesus is the word of God that does that for us. But also the word of God will produce righteousness in a person, not just positionally with God, but as we walk, that word will go to work and change our life. The same idea in Isaiah 45, 8. What comes down plants seeds that bears fruit of salvation and righteousness. Verse 17 of the same chapter, it's going to say, Israel is saved by the Lord he, with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded. Isaiah 46, 13 God puts salvation in Zion. And there are times where God does this, like physical, national salvation, but mainly it's that Jesus will come up from the nation of Israel, right? He will be an Israelite, a Hebrew, and he's going to bring the ultimate salvation from, for humanity. So God puts salvation in Jerusalem. His name is Jesus. And that's why he was put outside Jerusalem on the cross to be the salvation for everyone, but it comes from Israel. Isaiah 49, 6, the servant of God is a light of salvation to the nations. Isaiah 51, verse 1, salvation and righteousness come by the arm of the Lord. Isaiah 52, 7, the word of salvation comes from God. So God not only does salvation, he speaks salvation. And I'm not reading these on purpose so that you guys go and study because this these aren't necessarily, necess uh, aren't required for the points that I'm making. It's just kind of extra, like context. Isaiah 52.10, um, God's arm will reveal and make known his salvation. Isaiah 59.16 through 17, salvation and righteousness come together again. Isaiah 61.10, salvation and righteousness are the garments of the anointed one. Um, he puts it on. 
Isaiah 62, 1 through 2, righteousness and salvation are coming for the people of God. Same with 62, 11. And the last one is 63, verse 5. God's arm brings salvation that no one else can. In fact, let me go there for you to show you. When I say like God looks for salvation among humanity and will not find it, knows it's not going to be found, that's why he steps in to do it. It says, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. And my wrath upheld me. This is God saving some and what? Trampling the enemy nations simultaneously. Because salvation for us is the defeat of sin, death, darkness, and the devil so that we can be free. Our salvation is wrapped up in his victory. So victory over the enemy is our salvation in Christ. That's, this is why I say Jesus is the arm in Isaiah. I'm, I'm so convinced, man, that, that when he speaks of the arm of God, bringing him salvation, it's literally God himself stepping into human flesh, the Son of God being the extension of the Father to bring the salvation none of us can have without him. Let me show you um, a couple things. We see the promise of salvation the first time in Genesis 3.15. God says, I'll put uh, enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. There you go. Salvation. There is a coming one who will be in the likeness of man. He will take out, he'll, he'll be a person. He'll come from Eve. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent, who is representative of darkness. Genesis 49, 18, we see Jacob on his deathbed. And he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Hmm. What is he referring to? We already saw in Isaiah, especially in 12, verse 2. Let me give you this explicit statement, just so no one's wondering. Uh, It says very clearly, God is the salvation of his people. That's why it's interesting. You know, uh, same with Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Same with Isaiah 33, 2 and all the other ones I mentioned. Um, Isaiah 17, 10. Um, Isaiah 33, 6. Uh, he says, I am your salvation to the people. Psalm 35, 3. So uh, I think we can all agree that God is it's the salvation of his people. There's no salvation without God. You know, um, in fact, he'll say in Isaiah 43, 11, and this is interesting because Jesus is the savior in the New Testament. He says, I am the Lord, besides me, there is no savior. That language is used so much in Isaiah. Besides me, there is no. Besides me, there is no. You're gonna see a unique phrase in Isaiah's prophecy. It's I am he. I am he. And God will say that to know I am the exclusive fill in the blank. Exclusive God, exclusive righteousness, exclusive salvation, exclusive way. He's ex- there's no one else but him. And in the New Testament, Jesus will say quite a few times, I am he. And we only see that phrase appear in Deuteronomy and Isaiah, as far as I've studied. Um, you'll also see that salvation relates to the word of God in Psalm 119. The psalmist says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word and your promises. And then you can go to Hebrews 5, 9, and 10 to see that Jesus 
is the source of eternal salvation. And being made perfect, which is not referring to morality or like totality, but as the first resurrected human up from the dead, he has been made our mediator, our representative who can actually hold up the other end of the covenant that none of us ever could. And there's a new covenant built on his blood. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Him being a high priest, mediator, the perfect one, it all relates, okay? So Jesus is the source of salvation. Luke 1.69, Zechariah has a prophecy and he goes, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation. Like you would blow the trumpet to note, we won, victory, you blow that thing. And, and Zechariah is going, yep, that's been raised up, salvation is here. Just like when Simeon the prophet in Luke 2.30 looks at baby Jesus and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, Lord, that you've prepared. Not only is Jesus the source of salvation, he is salvation. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 6, it talks about how all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And this is John the Baptist making way for the Lord, who is the salvation of his people. Uh, Acts 4, 12, you know, this is what the apostles say of Christ. There's salvation in no one else. There is no other name. That sounds like the exclusive claims that God makes in Isaiah of himself, where God goes, I am your savior. Besides me, there's no one else. I bring salvation, no one else does. It's the exclusive, I'm the only one that can. The apostles attribute that same theology to Christ. There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. You know, you can go on and on. Acts 13, 23, uh, God has brought to Israel the savior as he promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Acts 16, 17, you know, you even have like a demon-possessed girl crying out, these men, Paul and Silas, they're telling you about the way of salvation. That's Christ. So in, in other words, all I'm trying to show you is that in the Old Testament, there's a category, God is salvation. Salvation is not without God. Jesus is plugged perfectly into that category. In the New Testament, he is the salvation of his people and of humanity. And it's very important you see this because salvation is connected to the word of God, the righteousness of God, the arm or the power of God. I think the arm is representative of God's strength to accomplish. So now let's go to righteousness, okay? Righteousness in Isaiah. Is this cool? Any Bible nerds out there like me? This is like, this is coming out of me too quickly. I need to slow down. I've been holding this in, man. Righteousness in Isaiah. The first time you'll see it, it actually relates to a child being born, a son being given. The government will be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Why is his name Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I don't believe this is a mix-up of father and son. I believe, again, name theology is simply who he is. Jesus 100% says things as he's approaching Jerusalem, like, I longed to gather you like a mother hen. It's like that, 
not to make Jesus a woman, you might say a fatherly heart, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore. So that's the first time you see righteousness in Isaiah is it relates to the coming son, the one who will hold the government on his shoulders. Isaiah 11, three through five, the righteous branch of Jesse, again, referring to Jesus, he will wear righteousness as he reigns with justice. Isaiah 33, five, God fills Jerusalem with righteousness. And again, if salvation comes from Zion and is planted in Zion, and then righteousness is being filled, uh, Zion's being filled with righteousness, there you see those two things coming together. Isaiah 45, 22 through 24, it says a word of righteousness has gone out of God's mouth. I want to show you this. This is worth stopping for. The Lord says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. By myself I've sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return. To me, what does the Lord say through Isaiah? To me, every knee will bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound like Philippians 2? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Where do the apostles and the biblical authors get this language? They're seeing the Old Testament the way we need to see it. It says, only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. In other words, righteousness and strength, which I believe represents the arm of God, that's only found in the Lord. The strength to overcome the enemy, the victory over the enemy only comes from him. And righteousness also comes from God alone. We don't manufacture righteousness. I don't try and be righteous. He makes me righteous. Why do you think 2 Corinthians can say we are the righteousness of God? And people are like, whoa, probably a translation error. No, it's actually, that's facts. That's facts. We are the righteousness of God. Because Christ has actually brought us into himself. We're grafted into him, right? So that we're a part of his body and we abide in him. And so now his righteousness is extended to us. Uh, Isaiah 46, 12 through 13. We'll talk about how the enemies are far from God's righteousness. Isaiah 58, 8. God's righteousness actually protects his people. Kind of like the angel in Exodus. Uh, and Isaiah 62, 2. The nations will see the righteousness of God. And I don't believe this is just like in, in when his people do the right stuff. This is... Let me take you to Isaiah 62 too, because at this point, the people of God have no inherent righteousness. So this is not, ah, the nations will see how righteous Israel is. That was always the intent, but they failed. So instead, the prophecy goes like this. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. This righteousness, right? is something that God actually crowns his people with so that they're a crown of beauty in his hand. This is righteousness God gives as a free gift to his people because his son made way for it and his son paid for it and his son modeled it and his son is perfect righteousness who can give it. 
He's the source. So you're going to see that, um, you know, in the Old Testament, there's all these prophecies about the righteous one that's coming. The problem is no one's righteous. No one's perfect. No one meets the standard of God. No one perfectly captures the heart of God and is a perfect human being. No one, no one can, can be that. So Jesus steps in. Jeremiah 23 talks about how the days are coming where there will be righteousness in the land. And then in Jeremiah 33, it, I'll go there actually, talks about how God will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Who is the righteous branch that will execute righteousness in the land? I think we all know who that is. And this is the name by which it will be called, Judah, Jerusalem. The Lord is our righteousness. So pause. Who is the righteousness of his people? It's God. So when you see statements like 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus is our righteousness, or, you know, 1 John 2.1, Jesus is the righteous one, the righteous, or Acts 3.14-15, Peter, you know, accuses the, the, the unbelieving crowds that they denied the holy righteous one. Same with Stephen, you killed the righteous one in Acts 7. Acts 22.14, there will be a day that they'll see the righteous one. And then Romans 3, you have a statement like this. The righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from what? The law. Even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What did Jeremiah say at the end of his prophecy in, in chapter 33? It says, Judah, Jerusalem will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. So how does God reveal his righteousness, give it to his people? Is it through their obedience to the law? Is it through their efforts? Is it through doing enough good? No. It's apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for everyone who believes. So righteousness comes by believing. Jesus is the righteous one. He's the source of righteousness. He gives righteousness. That's why I believe righteousness being manifested apart from the law here, right? Of course, referring to the righteousness we receive through Jesus, not by our efforts and our obedience and our holiness, but it's Jesus coming. And I believe this is why Hebrews will touch on Jesus is a priest who has not been appointed by the law, but he actually comes apart from and outside of what the law prescribes a priest should be. When you read the Old Testament law, the Torah tells us that you actually need to descend from the tribe of Levi, and specifically the Aaronic priesthood. You have to descend from Aaron to be a high priest. Jesus did not. He did not. So how is it that the tribe, someone from the tribe of Judah can be a high priest that apparently only rightly belongs to the tribe of Levi? That's because he, the righteousness of God, the, the true high priest, is not restricted to what the law requires a person to be in order to be a priest. He comes in the, after the order of Melchizedek. And that's not him violating the law. That's not undermining the law. That's not contradicting the law. That's Jesus being what was prior to the, in, in the installment of the law. 
is he came first. The law is an expression of his heart. The law is who he is. He actually represents the totality of the law. And so the righteousness, this is why Jesus fulfills the law for us to be what none of us ever could. He meets it perfectly and he can extend us righteousness through his obedience to the law, not through ours. So this is how it's apart from the law. The righteous one is Christ. So this is the whole thing, man, is that salvation and righteousness go hand in hand. When God saves, he's doing that in righteousness. And spiritually speaking, when you're saved from sin, death, the devil, and, and you know, whatever else, okay, you're saved to be righteous in the sight of God. He makes you righteous. How does God do this though? He actually does it by his righteous right arm. A-R-M. He accomplishes it by his arm. This is the next word in Isaiah I want you to see. Arm in scripture, I don't believe is just poetic or metaphorical, you know. I believe the arm represents, if you can disagree all you want, I don't think you'll find a reason to. But the arm of God represents his strength, his power, his ability to accomplish salvation from enemies, and it involves judgment against the enemy. Now, we've already seen that Jesus is the righteousness and the salvation of God. What if he's also the arm of God? So you have passages like Exodus 6, Exodus 15, 16, Deuteronomy 4, 34. Uh, and if you want a list of these, I can always send these to you. Um, you know, Deuteronomy 7, 19, 9, 29, 11, 2, 26, 8. I'm listing them all out to show you that salvation and victory over Egypt at the Red Sea is for a number of centuries. That's like Israel's identity in terms of what God has done for them. It's always, look at what he's done. He paved the way through the Red Sea. He led you away from Pharaoh. He brought them down. He destroyed the enemy. He brought signs and wonders on Egypt. That was like their reference point for centuries for who God is and what he can do and also what he's done for them. That's like their, their, um, the, their pillar of remembrance. They would set that up their memorial, and they would constantly look back. Ah, oh, look at what he did in Egypt. And so when you think salvation or what God's arm accomplishes, for quite a long time in Israel's history, the Red Sea and Egypt, that was like the biggest event in their mind. There's also general salvation, not a specific event, but like just general salvation, like in Job 40 verse 9, Isaiah 33, 2, Isaiah 40 verse 10, Isaiah 48, 14, Isaiah 51, 5. And this is just speaking of a general salvation God can bring, okay? There's a third kind of salvation, and it's actually God bringing victory over the enemy nations in the promised land. Psalm 44, verse 3, Psalm 77, verse 15, Psalm 89, verse 10, and Psalm 89, 21. Um, and then there is, you know, and this is everything I found in Scripture about the arm of God. There is actually an arm of humanity. Humanity has a metaphorical, you know, power and ability. And if you take all the human beings on the planet and bring it all together, it's still infinitely less than God's power. And so, you know, scripture speaks about the arm of man or the arm of the wicked um, or being called to take up arms, go to battle. So when you think about arm as, re as referring to God and Isaiah specifically, um, 
like almost every time, it has to do with God accomplishing salvation for someone weaker. God stepping in to do what they couldn't do for themselves. Trampling the enemy, making a way through the Red Sea, removing enemy nations, calling them to go to war they can't win, but God enables them to win. This is God empowering or doing powerfully what someone can't do for themselves. So that's the arm in, in, in scripture, not just Isaiah, but in scripture. Okay, so um, let me take you here. So we are absolutely clear on this. Psalm 62, 11 and 12. It says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Power belongs to God. Okay, can we agree that all power, not just some, most, all power belongs to God? And that to you, Lord, belongs steadfast love. Okay, power is his. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 1, God is the power of his people. He accomplishes salvation by his mighty right arm. Right? He is the source of their power to do anything. Jesus says so many similar things in like John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. It talks about how Paul's going, look, I didn't come and use big words when I preached the gospel. I came and I just spoke very simply so that the cross of Christ wouldn't be emptied of power. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what is the power of God? The word of the cross. What makes a, very, a simple message about a Jewish carpenter being nailed to a Roman cross and dying and resurrecting, what makes that message have the power to bring us up spiritually from the dead? Well, I think it's precisely because of this. Jews demand signs, Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Romans 1.16 will say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. So what makes the gospel message able to save should someone believe and receive is the fact that Jesus is at the center of it and he brings power to that message. He makes that message matter because he's done something. And all we're doing is testifying of what he's done. All we're doing is telling people what he's done. And so Jesus really is, I believe in, in Isaiah, when you look at the arm of God, bringing salvation, bringing people out of Egypt, bringing people through the Red Sea, bringing people into the nations, uh, rescuing Israel from you know, the wicked, uh, all these different things. Jesus is the actual arm of God, the extension of the Father to do uh, what no one else can do for themselves. He's the power of God. The last one is this. You're going to see the glory of God in Isaiah. And this is where I'm going to take a minute to gather myself because we've seen the righteousness, the salvation, the, the, the power or the arm of God. Um, now you're going to see the glory and the name of God in Isaiah. And my goodness. And then Wednesday, we'll talk about the word of God and the angel of God and how all this comes together. 
All this comes together. The word brings salvation and righteousness. The arm of God accomplishes that so that the word that goes out actually produces salvation and righteousness in a person and it gives God glory and magnifies his name and is consistent with his name. And so, um, quick potty break. Uh, if you're on TikTok, it is what it is. I'm on YouTube if you wanna see the announcements and I'll be right back. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Woo! I hope you've been tracking as much as you can. Um, this is the best stuff. Sometimes people want like the, the clearest instructions, you know, with like messages, sermons, so just tell me what to do. And I love practical applications. I love taking the word of God and going, you know what, here's personal instruction and step-by-step -step things that you can do with the word. When it comes to actually being able to walk that out effectively, it's like your ability to do that is deeply rooted in your understanding of who God is. So in other words, if I can just give you the clearest picture of, of God, and help you understand him better, uh, your life will change naturally as a result of that. I don't mean without your effort and you won't even realize, I'm saying through having a clearer view of God, everyone's living out their theology. Everyone has a view of God. Either he doesn't exist or he's one among many or he's the only true God of Israel. You know, everyone has a view of God. And so your life will be lived out based on your view of God. Everyone's living out their view of God. So if I can give you a clear understanding of his, his character and nature, just more, the more that I could do that, 
your life will change naturally um, for the better, for the better. So let's go to Isaiah 28.5. We're going to look at the glory of God in Isaiah. There are a, a number of statements that God makes about his glory. Okay. And I love it. I love it. Isaiah 28, 5, it says, in, the day, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And that's a future reality from the vantage point of Isaiah 28. But also, no matter what, God is always the glory of his people. In Isaiah 40, verse 5, God's glory will be revealed. And in Isaiah 42, verse 8, and Isaiah 48, 11, it says, God shares his glory with no other. And yet, in John 17, Jesus does talking about, talk about um, the shared glory he's had with the Father before the world existed. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone is actually created for the glory of God. Let me, let me take you here for a minute and show you something. Okay. Again, I'm convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the glory of God, which is why he can say things like the glory we've had uh, shared before the world existed in eternity past, essentially, is what he's saying. What comes before the world? Um, and so everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He's talking about Israel specifically, but technically, it's true no matter what. Everything God makes is for his glory. Everything. Even the unbeliever, the intended purpose was for them to live for his glory. Even them existing and being made in his image, uh, there's, there's some kind of glory God receives from making image bearers of himself. And so Isaiah 43, 7, it says that he created everything for his glory. Okay. Um, Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 is said to be the heir of all things. The heir of all things. And that's important because in Colossians 1.16, this is what it says, and this is by Jesus, right here, the beloved Son. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We'll talk about firstborn in episodes 5 and 6. Okay, that language of only begotten firstborn, we'll talk about it. It just very simply refers to rank or status. By him, by who? By Jesus, all things were created. Okay, in heaven and on earth. The things you see, the things you don't see. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him. That's why he's the word of God. That's why in Genesis, God says, let there be light. God says, let the oceans, you know, the waters separate. This is why God says what he wants to happen. And the son is the word accomplishing the work of the father, I believe. But also look at, not just all things are through the son, they're all right here. It says everything, all things, not some, not most, all things are for him. Now you can't get around that. As much as you try and push back, you can't. Everything is for him. And yet everything is for the glory of God. And I believe those two ideas are both simultaneously true. Because in Isaiah 46, 13, God puts his righteousness, his salvation, and his glory in Zion. I think you're starting to get it. This is what he says. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. I bring near my salvation, which will not delay. 
I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So, the three ideas here in Isaiah 46, 13. Now, of course, there are smaller moments of this. There's pockets of this being true. When Isaiah is prophesying this, he's speaking of, not mainly, but he is speaking of Israel coming back into the land at the end of their exile, right? But that's not the ultimate fulfillment of this. The ultimate and the main prophecy within Isaiah 46, 13 is that the righteousness, the salvation, and the glory God will put in Zion, in Jerusalem, is going to be his son. He's going to be his son. And so it, it is theologically consistent, it is biblically consistent, it is logically consistent that Jesus is in fact the glory of God. He's the radiance of God's glory in Hebrews chapter 1 verse, I think it's 3. He's the exact imprint of his nature in Philippians. So the glory of God is the people's rear guard in Isaiah 58 verse 8. Now this is a rabbit trail for sure, but here's the short story. In, in Exodus, when God rescues his people, he sends an angel to be the rear. He says, the angel, the angel of the Lord is the rear guard of his people. And the angel also goes ahead of them, before them, okay, to prepare a way for them. And it's also why Jesus in John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you. But nonetheless, so the angel in Exodus is doing the preparing, the making a place, the paving the way, and the rear guarding. Um, and yet in Jude and 1 Corinthians 10, it makes it clear that Jesus is the one who led the people out of Egypt. He's the one that brought forth water from the rock. He's the one that actually paved the way and protected the people. And so you go, which one is it? Which one is it? This is why when we get to the word of God and the angel of God in the next episode, you're going to see how they're the same person. It's Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ. And he's not some created. Angel simply means messenger. And so when Jesus is functioning pre-incarnate, you know, prior to the incarnation, he is doing the work of the Father, speaking on behalf of the Father in a pre-human flesh kind of way to do what we need him to do before he does the ultimate. So, you know, it says in Isaiah 58, 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing will, will spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will be your rear guard. This is what God promises. So the glory of God here is the righteousness of his people. What's happening? Well, the righteousness is going before them. The glory of God is being their rear guard. In other words, the, the people of God are protected on both sides by his glory, by his righteousness. That's their salvation, right? And it makes so much sense. If Jesus is the righteousness and the salvation of, his, of God and the glory of God, then when we look back at the Exodus narrative and we see the angel of the Lord functioning in that, then Jude and Paul and other biblical authors are right. When they make Jesus the one doing the, the, the preparing, the victory, the saving, the bringing water out of the rock, when they say Jesus is doing that, they're not pulling that out of their butts. They're looking at the Old Testament going, oh my gosh, he's, he's been there the whole time. <laughs> are you kidding me? Like God has been giving us breadcrumbs leading up to Christ so that if we study the Old Testament, then when he comes, we'd recognize him and go, that's the glory of the Father. That's the righteousness of God. That's the salvation of his people. Um, the glory of God rises upon his people in Isaiah 60 verse 1. In Isaiah 62 verse 2, the righteousness is the glory of God. 
And then in Isaiah 66, 18, the people will see the glory of God, okay? Now, I already showed you Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. I showed you, uh, well, I mentioned Philippians. He's the express image of God. John 1, 14, it says, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, you might, in some sense of the word, you could say that Jesus has actually not borrowed, but inherited glory of the Father to bring to humanity in the earth, which is what makes him the glory of God personified. This is why Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration will pull back, you know, a little bit of the curtain so that Peter, James, and John can behold the, the radiance of his light and go, whoa, geez, we thought Moses and Elijah were we're cool. You're so much better. They behold his glory. His glory. And of course, you know, everyone has a kind of glory. Uh, like scripture talks about the glory of the nations, the glory of the people. Like the, it refers to like the reputation, uh, their weightiness, their, their, in some sense, their status, their renown. Um, and Jesus is that exact thing to the Father. Yeah. He's, this is why he can say, when you see me, you see the Father. It's crazy. In fact, Revelation 21, 23 wraps this up oh so neatly. And it says, in the new Jerusalem, the city doesn't need sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it light. And he's going to repeat that same idea in a different way. And its lamp is the Lamb. Well, who's the lamb? Revelation makes it very clear that's Christ. G John the Baptist says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb and he's the light, the glory of his people. Same idea. For God to give light through his glory to his people is exactly what it means for Jesus to be the glory of his people. Same thing. There's a shared glory in Revelation. Shared glory in John 17. Shared glory in eternity past between the Son and the Father. Um, in fact, this is just a little freebie. And I, I thought I'd pair it with the glory of God. Because in Isaiah, you see the name of God quite a bit. The name of God is paired with the righteousness, the salvation, the glory, the power, the renown of God. The name refers to the sum total of a being's character, who they are. They're the sum total of their attributes and character. That's the name in Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, 27, it says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. This is a sign of the presence of God quite a bit, whether it's on Mount Sinai, uh, whether it's, um, I believe, when the temples being erected. Um, uh, Job talks about thick darkness. When God meets Abraham, there's a thick darkness. Okay, So his lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction. That's the most poetic thing you could... That's like the most poetic way you could frame up destroying people. Uh, and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. So what happens here is we have the name of God coming from afar. Referring, I believe, also to his reputation. Um, but look at what Psalm chapter 20 verse 1 says. Okay, 
What's interesting in the Old Testament is the name of God, and I'm taking this from Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. I think this is a verbatim quote, so don't sue me. I don't like Heiser passed away, but you know, people who represent him, please don't sue me. He says, the name functions as a substitute word for Yahweh, the God of Israel. In several occurrences, the name is personified. Just like the righteousness of God is personified in Christ and salvation and the arm and the power and the glory. The name also does that same thing. The name is a person. We see this in Isaiah 30. The name of God is coming from afar. Now, you might just say, well, that's just the reputation. He's being made known to the nations. Psalm 20 verse 1 actually says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God, of the God of Jacob, protect you. So the name is doing a protecting, okay? Or you might say to find refuge in the character and the ways of of God is a protection to you, but still it is doing a protecting of you. The name is an entity that can protect and guard people. Uh, Deuteronomy has a lot to say about the name, especially with respect to the name being the very presence of God. Whether it's residing in the tabernacle, the holy city, or eventually the temple, okay? Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 11. And this is all like Isaiah is, Isaiah's prophecy after studying all this is for me one of the most profound and deep revelations of God, the Godhead in, in the entire scripture. Isaiah's prophecy, man, what a, what a gift. What a gift this is. Deuteronomy 12, it says, When you go over the Jordan, live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you live in safety, then to the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. To make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings. In other words, he's saying there's going to be a place where God is going to reside among his people. Okay? But the reputation of God will be in the earth throughout the entire nation should you do what he says. And so here Isaiah, or, uh, Moses is saying there's going to be a place where God's going to plant himself in the midst of his people. Wherever that is, he's going to make his name dwell there. It's the, the abiding presence of God. It's God tabernacling among his people. How? Well, it's his name, his character. Um, and I believe that Jesus, if, if we're not going to personify the name and make the name Jesus, we can at least say Jesus is the perfect embodiment and expression of God's full character and ways and heart. In fact, Isaiah 45, 3, we read this already, that to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. And God says that exclusively of himself. Yet in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, God has exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? Well, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, Under the earth, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And whatever language, you know, the name Jesus gets translated into, the the truth stays the same. The sum total of his character is above everyone else. No one comes near.
the character and the ways in the name of Jesus. In fact, every knee is going to bow to him. In heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. The living, the dead, the visible, the invisible, whether in fear and terror or in love and adoration, everyone's going to bow to him. But I thought Isaiah 45, it's God. Well, hold on. In Isaiah, this is the last thing we'll tackle today. This is just like, I know, I'm taking a bucket. I'm taking a swimming pool of information, and I'm pouring it on you. I get that. So go back and watch this later. But in Isaiah, this is very important. You're going to see God use the phrase, I am he. I am he. And the only other time I've found that's used is in Deuteronomy 32, 39. And I don't have an incredibly, you know, reliable search tool. I have like my own brain and my own Googling skills and reading over and over to look for the phrase. So if I'm, you know, mistaken, I'll take that. But the point still stands that this is a very unique way of God um, clarifying who he is. He says, I am he. The first time you see it, again, as far as I'm concerned, is in Deuteronomy 32, 39. The rest, good Lord, <laughs> the rest is going to be in uh, Isaiah. Now watch. See now that I, even I, am he. Who? Who are you? Well, there's no God beside me. In other words, he is the only exclusive, true, and living God. I kill and I make alive. God takes life, he gives it freely. I wound and I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. Now, this is not arbitrary wounding. This is, hey, I inflict the consequences of someone's rebellion and sin and stupidity and all that stuff that results in the wounding. Like, I inflict that. I make sure that happens, hopefully to turn you so I can heal you, right? But there's no one that can deliver out of my hand, he says. Woof. Okay, hold on to that. He's making an exclusive claims. Isaiah 41.4, he says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? The answer is no one. No one. He says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, the first generation and with the last, he remains the same throughout eternity past, all the way to eternity future, across all of human history. He is the same. He's the only true, self-sufficient, exclusive God. The only living God. Them some fighting words. Yeah, but God can back it up. And it's true. Isaiah 43, 11, He says, I am the Lord. Besides me, there's no Savior. That's why it's really interesting that Jesus is the Savior in the New Testament. Like, he's like literally called that. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you're my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. Henceforth, I am He. There it is again. I am He. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work. Who can turn it back? This is speaking of the power, the authority, the ability of God. He's unstoppable. You might want to get on His side if you have not already. He's unstoppable. So when you are safe in Him and you take refuge in Him, ain't no one going to take you away. Isaiah 43, it says, you are my witnesses. He goes on. Um, 
I don't know why I just brought this up again. But if you go down, he'll say, I'm your redeemer. He's essentially saying, I'm going to shut down Babylon. I'm the holy one. I'm the king. Those are two titles used of Christ already. He's referred to as the holy one, and he's referred to as the king of kings. And he's referred to as the Lord. We'll see this all. He said, thus the Lord, I make a way in the sea. And yet Jude, Paul will say, yeah, Jesus. And this is not contradicting. It's both and. Is that the Father and the Son working in, in unison? Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now who says he's the way? John 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Even in the wilderness, in the barren wasteland, where there's only sin, death, destruction, and evil, Jesus goes, I'll, I'll be the way out of that into the kingdom. That's why he says, I offer rivers of living water, even in the desert of your barren soul. The wild beasts will honor me. I believe this is speaking of the Gentiles. They'll declare my praise. Yeah, you didn't call upon me, Jacob. You've been a, you have not brought me your sheep or your burnt offerings. And then you go down to verse 25. He says, you've burdened me with your sins and your iniquities. I, I am he. Who? I'm he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. So, God, at least here in verse 25, being he, it means he alone has the authority and the power and the just heart to declare someone forgiven. So why do we see Jesus doing that exact thing to the paralytic being let down through the roof and pissing off all the Pharisees? It's Isaiah 46.4, the Lord says, even to your old age, I am he, to your gray hairs, I'll carry you. I've made and I'll bear, I'll carry and I'll save. So God here being he, he alone carries and bears and saves and has made, specifically the nation of Israel here in this context. But I'd say all of creation fits under that, right? He's made everything. He sustains everything. And yet we see Jesus doing that in Hebrews 1. He sustains all things by the word of his power. Interesting. Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I'm the first and I'm the last. Jesus says that in Revelation. He says, I'm the first and I'm the last. The first to rise from the dead specifically, and the last in that line of, uh, you might, the last to mark the end of, of that era of Adam, because he's the new Adam. He's the last Adam. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call them, they stand forth together. In other words, just so you know, I'm the one who called Israel. I'm the one who spread out the heavens. I'm the one who laid the foundation of the earth. And then in Colossians 1, we see Jesus doing that exact same thing. Isaiah 51, 12, he says, I, I am he who comforts you. I am he who comforts you. So I, I want to show you something, and we'll end here, okay? All those exclusive statements of God saying, hey, just so you know, I am he. And that he is a very, as an Israelite, you heard that, you go, oh, you mean you're him. 
the only true and living God, the only one who sustains and creates everything into existence. You are he who saves. No one can stop you. No one can stay your hand. You do whatever you want in the heavens and on the earth. You are he. And in John 4, this is the only other biblical character I've come across that says, I am he. I was thinking through all the prophets and all the apostles, even when they're trying to convince their you know, their God-given authority and status. The I am he is just a unique phrase that God uses exclusively of himself. I am he. I am he. The woman said to him, this is the woman at the well, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all these things. Jesus said, hey, I who speak to you, I am he. And you go, ah, oh, he's just saying he's the Messiah. Do you understand what it means to be the Messiah? That anointed one to do what only one person can do and no one else can? John 8, 25, he says, I told you you would die in your sins unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. You'll die in your sins. Now we saw in Isaiah, uh, I think it was like 43, that God is the one who blots out sins. If you trust in him, and yet Jesus here, again, not contradicting, not pushing against the Father, consistent with scripture. Unless you believe I am he. It, when they heard that, you can imagine they would know what he means. There's no, you know, Confusion. It's not like vague. We don't know. You know what I mean. John 18, 6. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, you know, this is what it says. Okay. You had the Pharisees and the soldiers coming with weapons. Jesus knowing everyone that's about to happen. Everything that's about to happen. He says, who are you looking for? And they go, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground? What's that about? You have like a hundreds possibly of soldiers, officers and Pharisees equipped, and they come to this one Jewish carpenter in the middle of the garden at night who says, I am he, and you fall back to the ground. What would cause that kind of trembling? Unless you had some idea of what the Hebrew scriptures said about that one who says, I am he. Exclusive language, man. I'm telling you. Revelation 2.23. Jesus talks about how, hey, he's really warning the church here in Thyatira, I believe. Yep. And he says, I'll throw her onto a sickbed. That's the Jezebel character who's in the church. All the churches will know I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give each of you according to your works. This right here is a description of God. We're going to get to the scripture later on in the series where we see God himself says no one else knows the human heart or the thoughts of a man. No one else can read minds except me. And I, I, I believe it's also in Isaiah. 
And we'll get there when we get there. I can't remember where specifically, but watch the later episodes of this. And when we get there, you're going to realize Jesus is saying he's the one who decides what each person earns at the end of their life. He's the one standing in the place of judge, you know, giving people according to their works and searching the mind and heart as the one who apparently has the authority and the ability to do so. When, it's, when God says, I, I alone do. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2 will talk about how no one knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of that person. And of course, God who made them. And then Jesus out here reading thoughts, knowing hearts, you know, how are you doing that? Who is this man? Well, that's what we're here to discover. That's exactly what we're here to discover. So when you read Isaiah, next time you read Isaiah, and we're not even done, okay? I just didn't have time to pair the angel of God and the word of God with this. But on Wednesday, when we get to the angel, and when we get to the word, combined, those are one in the same character. The word is actually a character in the Old Testament, not just something. You're going to see it. And for now, when you read Isaiah, look for righteousness, salvation, the arm of God, the name of God, the glory of God. And then also look for the word of God and the angel of God. Look at how all these ideas come together, just as the arm of God accomplishes, so the angel of God does that in the Old Testament, accomplishes the salvation for the people of God. The arm of God accomplishes salvation in righteousness, gives them righteousness, and the power of God makes that possible. Um, The word of God also plants seed that produces righteousness and salvation. For It all comes together, man. You don't have one of these without the other. The name of God, the character, the power, righteousness, salvation, his glory, the word, and the angel of God as being one of those arms, but just labeled a little differently. The angel, I can't wait to show you, for me is different than just an angel or God's angel or the angels. And, and trust me, I looked at all like over 400 instances of the word angel, angelic, angels um, in, in the whole scripture. And what I've come across is, it's crazy. This is who Jesus is, man. So far, just off this episode alone, do do you think that Jesus is just a mere created man? Thank you for that gift, Deborah. Do, Do you think that Jesus is just a mere created person? John Whitworth says, hey, Look at Ezekiel 11 through the lens of prophecy. How after three days of ministering at the temple, Jesus goes, sits on the Mount of Olives, looks over Jerusalem. Then he eventually lifts off the Mount of Olives like the glory did. Let's do that right now. Ezekiel 11. The cherubim, the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. And by the way, that glory representative of the name that gets planted in the temple, the the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood on the mountain that is on the east of the city, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me 
and I told the exiles all that I had seen. So what John is saying here is, look, the glory of God goes up and stands on the mountain east of the city. So it leaves, listen, it leaves, if you want to just say it for now, the glory of God leaves the city, goes to a mountain, which is east of, away from, outside the city, right? Just as Jesus, there's so many, there's so many images coming to mind, but if Jesus is the glory of God personified in the midst of his people, then him being lifted up outside the city on the cross, and then eventually standing on the Mount of Olives to be carried up into, into heaven, where he stands at the right hand of the Father, this right here is a picture of that. Good stuff, John. Good job, John. Good job. Okay. I don't usually do this, but I, I'm sure y'all are probably so, you have so many questions. So what I would love to do is answer any questions that just off this episode alone. Nothing yet. No objections. I'm not going to deal with that quite yet. But anything that you're like, ah, could you clarify this? Or uh, did you mean this? I would love to just be as clear as possible. And so um, please let me know what wasn't clear, where I maybe misspoke, where I'm, you know, maybe not clarifying as well as I could. Do you guys have any questions before we get out of here? And the glory returns. That's right. And the glory of God eventually returns. I think that's what we see in the exile. Nation uh, Israel's taken out. The glory of God actually departs and then comes back. Comes back. Whew. It's crazy. So I just, guys, like, like I said, this is episode one. Episode two on Wednesday, we're going to talk about the angel of God and the word of God. This is why John says the word of God was with God, yet, you know, God at the same time. Episode three, we're going to look at 25 biblical reasons why Jesus is God in the scriptures. Same with episode four, 25 more reasons. Episode five, we're going to look at what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son or the firstborn. Same with episode six. We'll explore that. That's a common objection. Well, Jesus is firstborn. It means he's created. No, it's referring to status within a family. Episode seven and eight will address common objections. You know, so um, will you please clarify about the angel of the Lord? What needs to be clarified? Because that's going to take two hours minimum on, on Wednesday. Um, but m maybe I could do something now. I will wait. All right, sweet. Yeah, because you probably have questions that will just, if I answer it, it'll lead to more questions. Um, and... Yes, it's going to be good. Good, good, good. Um, Mystic Yasid Spoon. Uh, Gabriel, one of the holy, presides over, over paradise, over the Caribbean. Enoch, these are the names I watch. I will say this. Though Enoch is helpful Jewish literature, and though I think it can be helpful to understand where the biblical authors were coming from and what the, what the Jews were thinking in that time, Enoch is second, second temple literature, I think. Um, it's not divine authoritative, thus says the Lord. So be careful how strongly you stand on that. 
because the book of Enoch is, I wouldn't say, verified divine scripture. So, hey, if you guys didn't know, this is ministry, so you can go to abovereproachministry.com to check out all of our free resources. If you didn't already see the commercial break, um, you can give to the ministry. You can check out all our free resources, join the online church, get a copy of the book, um, check out our podcast, check out our second podcast. I'm trying to think, what else? And then pray for me. Come Wednesday, Malak Yahuwah, the King Messenger, the Eternally Existent One. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So there are some things that Enoch can say. You know, Peter, Jude, they reference Enoch. I don't think as points of necessarily uh, making a statement about the writings as absolute truth, but quoting, just like Paul will do in, in, um, in Athens, he'll use their poets and go, well, even your poets say, and even uh, your famous philosophers say, and he'll use that as a bridge to the truth. I, I think Peter and Jude do that with Enoch, but they're not stamping that book with their authority. Otherwise, it would be, I believe, in the canon of Scripture. And, that, you know, at the end of Enoch, it pretty much flies in the face of Jesus being Messiah. So that's my issue with it. It makes Enoch out to be this messianic character, the one we're waiting for, and you got to be careful. All right. I'll see you guys Wednesday. We have a live uh, uh, time of prayer and conversation in our Discord server. Join the online church. All the links are in the YouTube description below, um, as well as if you're on Facebook. And so you can check that out. And it's in about 20 minutes. All right. Thanks for watching. I'll see you guys Wednesday. Keep moving towards Jesus.